Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the teaching project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Dick Peterson, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 1988. Dick Peterson. I've been around the physics department for 35 years or so. Kind of uh, retired, but uh, seem to have a hard time doing that very well. So I'm I'm still around some. Been here a while and uh, came uh, uh, came in 1980. If there's any uniqueness in my journey, it's uh, starting as. very much a rural, introverted little farm kid uh, in um, in Wisconsin, um, not far from here, but near Red Wing, Minnesota. Actually, was home on a farm there. But but the unique, relatively unique these days is that I actually went to a one-room schoolhouse for all eight years of elementary work. There we were two people in my grade and about 20, 22 people in the whole school. So that was eight years of that. So that, and when I kind of reflect back, that that beginning, for better or for worse, it had some advantages and disadvantages, really impacted my life a lot. Um, and to begin with, um, if you talk about the, the strengths of uh, of uh, one-room schoolhouses, it is very much a group learning situation, which I still try to treasure in, uh, in project-oriented stuff in teaching physics and so forth. Uh, I, I still think, some, for me, some of that started back in that walking, uh, we walked to school about, about a mile or so along Highway 63. The weaknesses were really, first of all, in the arts. Uh, there were almost no uh, uh, background in, um, in art or music and so forth came out of that one-room schoolhouse. And actually for me, in thinking about physics, it um, was not a particularly good situa- situation for doing math. So I went in, when I went to uh, high school to uh, Rode the bus, quite a big deal when you've gone to um, a one-room school for the eight years. But when I went to high school, it was um, I I took algebra in the ninth grade, and uh, that was quite a struggle for me. I really had a hard time with the math initially, uh, hard, and I didn't know how to study. Um, never really had had to study, and I certainly traced that through undergraduate years and graduate school, 
I actually ended up eventually being a math major along with physics, mostly just to fill in the, where I felt the weaknesses of that background. So anyway, I I went to high school in um, in Ellsworth, uh, or as my Swedish grandmother would say, Ellsworth, uh, was where we went to school. That, incidentally, that one-room school that I went to is the same one-room school that my father went to, so um, years before. And uh, I was certainly a first-generation uh, college student. Uh, relative to my father, uh, he did not go to high school, so he was went through eight grades in that same one-room school. So that that is a legacy that, uh, if I compared it to people I went to graduate school with and so forth, it really quite different. And I, at times, I've certainly seen it as a as a disadvantage of kind of starting out behind. And in, even in high school, I was not uh, viewed in the kind of the academic elite of the little school, which had only 90 or 100 people in my class. Um, but I was certainly not viewed in the uh, honors group, shall we say, of that uh, high school. So it was only when I got to uh, college, and uh, not we didn't have much money, and I certainly, you know, I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin River Falls, uh, which in physics happens to have a wonderful program, they still do, uh, and that really was a lot of the background that um, got everything started. And um, if I think about the teachers there uh, that really impacted me, they were uh, there were two or three teachers that in, at River Falls who really uh, impacted my life. And they were very different, but both very good in their own way. So one guy was kind of the old um, Prussian um, teacher who had everything in order and you you actually had to spit back definitions and by golly, you better not leave a comma out of what he had written. So that sort of... But that was, that was Mr. Albert, and, and and I actually prospered under that because I was behind. I was um, when I started college, I uh, um, had to take uh, what today you'd call pre pre calc. Uh, I took um, learned some trig and certainly polished up that Ellsberg a great deal more than it ever happened. Uh, and someone like um, he was not as mathematically oriented, particularly in notation. So in, he uh, was kind of had gone to school himself that, um, without using a lot of vector notation, which is the heart of how you conceptualize physics these days. And so I didn't get much of that from him, but by golly, we, we learned a lot of stuff. And then Fortunately, there was a, a younger faculty member who was actually going through grad school at the time, Wayne Suku, who kind of took many of us on and kind of helped us catch up with what people, how they do what you might call general physics these days. And this was the early 60s, so it was the era of uh, Halliday and Resnick and uh, famous physics books were just 
It was also in the Sputnik era that we were all responding to the challenges, international challenges. And so that was uh, uh, the heart of that, uh, that time in River Falls. Uh, I, I should mention, uh, through from that one-room schoolhouse through high school into college, I had one fear for sure, and that is I had a really hard time speaking in front of groups. Uh, we would call it stage fright, or it, it was really a bit of uh, what today you'd call anxiety. I think when I got in front of people, I could just freeze up and and, and uh, stay quiet when I'm supposed to be talking. And, and that, uh, that was a problem and uh, made me sure if there was anything I would definitely not want to be, and that would be a teacher, because that was my model of teaching was from this one-room schoolhouse in the high school. Teachers talked and they, were, um, they shared what they knew and I, was maybe pretty confident. I was growing in confidence I could do physics, but by golly, I, uh, I, I knew I could never teach it and would certainly not want to. It was not a motivation at all. So if, if there's any dream of be, becoming a teacher, it had to come later, actually in graduate school and postdoc level and not at those early levels. I remember my speech class at River Falls, uh, which for me was, you know, a total, totally fearful situation. I, I chose a nice physics-y topic to give one of my talks on, and the speech comm person said, well, you, you did well, but you just got to open your eyes. I, I was staring down at the floor like uh, physics and engineering people do a great deal of, and, and uh, I was scared to death of it. I guess I'd pass. So I was a, ter a terribly shy introvert, even through undergraduate years. And to some extent, still am, of course. When I walk into a classroom, uh, it's still, I see it as kind of by the grace of God that I can talk. Uh, and now I, I'm, I think it's swung the other way. I talk too much. So even in graduate school, it was, I was more thinking of becoming a, uh, probably a professional physicist. I did started to do optics, um, which I still have been doing, um, but it was um, certainly not a teaching-oriented thing yet at all. So. I did, it was, I went to Michigan State in uh, physics, and um, I, I would say it, uh, it uh, was really where I took off and, and finally rose above that one-room schoolhouse background a great deal in, uh, in, at Michigan State. I started to teach as a... Uh, graduate TA in optics class, and I was forced to. I had a three-year fellowship, which NASA was, in that period, dumping a lot of money into physics and engineering education, and so I was well taken care of for three years, but then the fellowship ends, 
And I said, oh, I guess you'll have to teach. And, and so I started to teach optics lab. And you have to kind of understand, this is the middle, now the middle 60s, and this was a tri triumphant era for, uh, not only was NASA dumping lots of money, but it was an era where um, a lot of things were happening in optics. The laser was kind of invented uh, and working for the first time in the early 60s, several different types of lasers, and gradually the whole area of optics became in many ways at that time the most active field of physics and it totally changed during that era so so all of that uh, here I am teaching an optics class with with a very nice uh, mentor um, elderly gentleman it seemed to me I'm sure now he's probably not as old as I am now but it um, he gave me a lot of freedom and at that point uh, particularly just prior to that, the first holograms had been made. Uh, and we determined, I determined with Dr. Haas, that we would utilize holograms in teaching uh, the optics lab. And I started to uh, work with undergraduates who, and I found I kind of liked that. And I found I didn't have to stand in front of people and talk. I could actually do things in the lab. And that, that's what, uh, that was kind of the light bulb going off, that I could see that maybe I could enjoy this, even though I was, I still would say to myself um, that uh, teaching orally in front of groups would be a really difficult thing. But gradually, it, as I worked with students in the lab with stuff that I could make work better, here some of them are very uh, great young geniuses it seemed, but I could uh, help them line something up and make it work, with uh, particularly using the new tool of the laser. Gradually I started to get what I would call feedback. My model of teaching would kind of be that you want a resonance between the teacher and the student and in this case that resonance happened because it was in the lab and I um, gradually kind of like that and, and that the, now the really interesting thing is you often think of your uh, postdoc experience coming out of your research in this case my um, postdoc experience which was at Los Alamos National Lab in New Mexico uh, really came out of my teaching. Uh, they were quite interested in the fact that I was making holograms with students and were able to measure stuff in the lab using uh, holograms. Which, um, so that, uh, it, it's an interesting thing that this resonance situation I experienced as a young TA uh, was really what made my postdoc at Los Alamos possible which impacted my whole life. Um, so uh, that's kind of when I'd say the teaching model did start to uh, become reasonable. And so that when the postdoc was done, uh, I probably could have stayed on and done research there, but I decided after the two-year postdoc, while I actually 
would keep going back to Los Alamos in the summers. Um, if you've been in northern New Mexico, it kind of gets into you. It's such a beautiful location. And um, we were relatively newly married. Uh, Los Alamos had uh, many attractions to it. But most of all, even during the postdoc, I think I now was starting to think about teaching. And I might add that it was for a researcher at Los Alamos was not many were thinking about teaching. Uh, and I was. So you could, things had really changed by that point enough that I, I knew I could actually even stand in front of people. And as long as I was talking about physics, my first love, as it were, I could uh, chatter on quite nicely and, and, and try to convey the the love of the subject that I had. So that's uh, that postdoc at uh, Los Alamos, New Mexico, um, which I might add still impacts even today. The uh, class I teach on the history of the atomic bomb came from that experience in uh, New Mexico as I, I learned to know and work with, uh, co-authored with some who had had been active in the uh, original atomic bomb project. That's a whole different subject, of course, but it's an interesting one for me. At the end of that postdoc, uh, I did start to apply to academia, uh, to places uh, like um, Bethel and Gordon. I was very active as a, my Christian faith was still a huge part of me, and I was quite interested in teaching at a Christian college, even though I had, you see, no background with that either. Um, I've never been to a Christian college, uh, so I had a various, I'm sure. I, I did get married to, a, to Donna uh, prior to this, and Donna went to that Christian college west of Chicago a little ways, and um, I saw she was still quite a normal person. Um, a wonderful, normal person, but she uh, helped me understand that uh, going to a Christian college uh, uh, can be quite helpful to some folks. And but for me, it was a totally new world. So I applied to places, and um, I actually ended up taking um, a job though at a comprehensive university in Illinois. We went to um, Western Illinois University. And for a decade, I started to teach there. There were many things to learn as a young teacher, and I think if, if there is a summarizing thought, it's that I did not realize I had the most to learn from the students, more than even from my colleagues. If you, at that point, if I looked at my colleagues, none of them particularly impacted my teaching. I'm sure they had some effect, but it was really the students. Again, um, a lot of it laboratory-oriented, hands-on, um, that uh, I learned that uh, I needed to learn from them, particularly to learn what they were getting and what they weren't getting, uh, which uh, for a young teacher is um, uh, hard to grasp in many cases. and. Um, but I liked it. I did like teaching. I could not assume that they um, had the background I did. Still, at gut level, uh, 
shy, introverted farm boy who knew how to build things and fix things, and uh, many of them did not have that aptitude at all. It didn't seem they'd hardly used a screwdriver uh, or a drill. And so going into the shop and so forth was a different... And um, it's interesting, at that time, um, I think I also learned that uh, you could share your uh, Christian faith also in a secular environment, uh, somewhat because of the way I approached work, both in lecture and lab. They, uh, I, we did teaching evaluations in those days as well. This is at Western Illinois University, actually. Um, in the mid-70s, and I can remember the students saying on their evaluations, well, I, I, I like that this guy had a Christian faith, and I never talked about my Christian faith, but it was that I knew of. I must have said a few things, but so I gradually I learned that what I could uh, convey about the deep, in, you know, who I was, and that that was probably the thing I learned the most from the students. I'm now um, up there in years, and I'd say I, even more than before, feel I have to know the students well. Whereas as a young professor, the early stages, as you call um, I uh, don't think I was quite as aware of that. I was, while well, at Bethel, I in a way, research has been my thing. I, I, it's doing the research first and then taking that into the lecture room and into the laboratory, that's what's made me tick. Um, but still, it's, um, uh, taken a while to, to respond to the st students at that point. We, we, we bring gadgetry into the lecture or into the lab even, and we do demonstrations. We try to use it to pull students into what we're doing. Those who study the science of teaching would say demonstrations are not necessarily effective in teaching concepts, but I, because that's true if you just do them uh, as a show, which we do at times. We are show people. Uh, but uh, if, if that were the end of it, it uh, somehow you have to use those demonstrations to pull the students in. And I've been uh, privileged to work with some people who were geniuses at that. And uh, both in laboratory and uh, in a lecture lecture situation. In uh, the science of teaching these days, particularly in physics, uh, to admit that you would ever lecture is almost bad, um, but but I have most of my life been a lecturer uh, in outside of the lab, so it's... Uh, but anyway, you, you have to um, um, really use the demonstrations to... And of course for me, it, it it plays on my original background quite a bit of the farm boy who liked to build things and make it work and fix things. Um, it's wonderful to do a demonstration that doesn't work because the students in, see how do you respond to that. And if you do demonstrations, you find you know 
a big percentage of them don't quite go like you plan. It's uh, uh, and the students see how you're responding to that and kind of get the feeling that uh, first of all you're not. Uh, some of them view almost any professor as just kind of a smart person, uh, but in this case, it's um, they're seeing how you personally react to nature, sometimes stand in awe of it, but also enjoy playing with it and fixing things. So the demonstrations really convey that. I, I probably should mention uh, in that context, uh, during my first years at Bethel, I had a chance to work with um, John Barber. John uh, is a remarkable teacher uh, and primarily a high school physics and chemistry teacher. So John Barber was famous at uh, Moundsview High School and at the end of a long day of teaching with fantastic effectiveness, physics and, and some chemistry at Moundsville, he would come over and teach his uh, conceptual physics class at Bethel. And that, uh, he was a magician with uh, demonstrations. Um, he was one of the founders of the physics force group at the University of Minnesota uh, because of his ability to do that. And he had this fantastic, beautifully timed sense of humor when the demonstration is working right or not working right. And you really learn to love the guy. And his students did. Um, at Moundsview, he was, uh, when, when he wasn't coming over to teach at Bethel at the end of an exhausting day, he would, um, at the end of the year, he was repeatedly chosen by Moundsview graduates to, to give the commencement address. Can you imagine a physicist and a chemist being chosen to give? Uh, it just shows what the students thought of him. And it was largely his, the demonstrations and the sense of humor and the fact that he got to know each student at a nickname uh, for almost all of them. It was an amazing thing. So in my first years of teaching at Bethel, John was one of the, uh, I look back at it now, when I interviewed at Bethel, they said, well, um, I think we think we'll have you teach in Dr. Barber's class. I did not realize at the time what that meant. Here I was following this guy who has the students eating out of his hand uh, in an awesome way, and I was supposed to come in and um, do a little demonstration or something to my member. I was teaching about musical acoustics and so forth, a, a favorite subject of mine, but compared to John Barber, uh, I had so much to learn there, and I, I did. John died a few years ago, way too early, but he still has a profound effect on uh, our department. He also greatly impacted his, his teaching colleagues, high school teaching colleagues of Jack Netland and Hank Ryan, who also impacted Bethel. And Jack fortunately still teaches our NAS class and uh, gets to impact uh, a future generation of uh, science teachers. I would say teaching physics at a liber Christian liberal arts college is not 
very different from teaching at uh, a secular uh, school that, that values teaching like uh, was true for me at Western Illinois. Um, so in both situations you try to convey the wonder of nature. Uh, you, you stand in awe of it. Uh, it's just that in a Christian environment you can convey that to you as a person that's being in touch with uh, what I tend to call the uh, the first word of God, the the, the creation, and, and so that that's a big part of it. Um, but mostly the students get the grasp sense that here's this guy working in the lab or, or giving lectures or doing demonstrations who who is um, walking uh, walking with God in uh, his or her own way and that uh, that it's an interplay that what you do in the lab or the lecture is directly impacted by God. It's not that God is changing the physics. Uh, fortunately he doesn't or we would really goof everything all up. Uh, the rules aren't changing but that they see that for you as a Christian doing physics that the uh, miraculous uh, interaction of God with the universe is um, something you glory in, and it's just fun. It's enjoyment, uh, and and that's often not what they think of when they think of physics. They think of being humbled by some stupid equation, which is not uh, so clearly ordained by God to them. So. That's for me the most important part as a Christian physics teacher is that they see that uh, you're uh, a participant in this um, creation and that um, you feel part of it. In the sense almost of C.P. Snow's uh, two cultures, I'd, humanities and the fine arts, uh, are uh, of course a crucial way in which we can learn to express personally in a unique way um, our interaction with, um, in our case, the interaction with the universe. Um, I um, can uh, remember very well my first um, class I taught at Bethel was actually what we call introductory physics. It's the physics class for life scientists. And uh, I was teaching that. And my class followed the class of, uh, of Bill Smalley. Uh, Bill Smalley was a anthropological linguist uh, and a great scholar and um, just being in touch with Bill was so cool because I could could see how his interaction with his work um, as both as a scientist but as a person of faith and a person in the social sciences was um, was so powerful for me. I can still remember coming into my very first Bethel class and um, Bill was just closing down his class and he had his uh, New Testament there on the front desk. 
Well, that blew my mind. I'm not, I wasn't used to teaching uh, or using the New Testament. Uh, and particularly, I already knew that Bill was a fantastic scholar who had helped develop a written language for the Hmong culture in the, the mountains of Laos. That's the Bill that I knew. And he, he just walks into class and, and shares how he does anthropology and linguistics and how closely it was connected with his faith. That, that's just an example in, in the case of social sciences of, um, of how directly connected it is to other sciences. And I really responded to that. I, I guess another um, uh, human side of of teaching that I felt early on was in that first week at Bella. It's your first week. Uh, first of all, I had experience of teaching in John Barber's class. Then I had the close acquaintance for the first time with Bill and his wife Jane Smalley. Um, and, and then at the end of the hallway in the AC 246, that lecture room that's still there, I couldn't help but hear kind of uh, another Bethel fixture of, uh, in this case, uh, an interdisciplinary figure, namely Russell Johnson, yes, uh, who spoke with his interesting Swedish uh, intonations all the time. But I couldn't help but observe how he was teaching. And uh, Russ, uh, I, I watched him in his Particularly, the, my second year at Bethel, I was appointed uh, division coordinator, and so Russell was in my division of sciences, and I had to figure out what made this guy tick. He had been at Bethel almost a half century teaching uh, the life sciences and, and so forth. And here, to see him start a class uh, at the beginning of the semester, he would actually go around and take the time to listen to each student and particularly would ask almost every student, where was their hometown? Well, I thought that's kind of quaint. Um, why does that matter? But I learned that because Russ knew all the little towns in Minnesota almost, it was his way of establishing a close connection with those students. And. Um, and uh, it worked. And uh, so even now when I teach, somehow I have to do what he did by going down the row. Um, but I, I can't do it that way. First of all, I feel uncomfortable. It takes too long to kind of, but of course what he was doing was really pulling the class together. So they see someone across the uh, class that uh, is from their hometown. Um, I have, what I do now is um, actually meet with each student for 15, 20 minutes at the beginning of the semester, which accomplishes for me and somewhat what I saw Russ accomplishing in his class. I can still remember him talking, uh, uh, he was talking about plants and so forth and his reverence for soil. Soil, soil, 
he would say, and he wouldn't call it dirt, it was soil. And he, he knew everything about it, and he knew on even this campus, if Russ led you on a tour around the lake, he would be pointing out the different soils that are around and how they impact all the living things. You know, it, was, it just brought out the interdisciplinary, for me, of course, as a farm boy, this is uh, also a step back into my past where soil was very much a part of what I knew something about and tended to now forget. When I came to Bethel, I brought a class that I had taught for many years at Western and started to teach musical acoustics, which allowed me to get to know music students and what made them tick very much. And uh, for me, that was a wonderful link in with that side of our campus. Um, and um, I remember, I, because I had, as you recall, somewhat because of my one-room schoolhouse background, almost no background in music whatsoever. I didn't know these much about these little dots that you call notes on the paper. It meant nothing to me, really. Um, so gradually, at, at both Western Illinois and at Bethel, I enjoyed touching on the uh, musical side of, of things and uh, helping them get a grasp of the physics side of their musical instrument, uh, which was a joy. Uh, and they, of course, <laughs> teach me very well what they were hearing when they hear a musical play, instrument play, and it's a little different from me wanting to hear the different physics and engineering harmonics, uh, they would actually be humanly, emotionally interacting with that music, which I was not very good at. I remember once I was giving a final exam in musical acoustics, and I thought it would be really cool uh, when the exam was being taken if I would play some music in the background. I thought that was just thoughtful part, just to represent what they, uh, and five or 10 minutes into the exam, so you've got to turn that off, because the music was, to them, was not just background, it was part of what they spent hours with each day playing with their, fiddle or with their horn, and uh, it was driving them nuts if they're taking an exam. It, it just shows, to some extent, the, the wall between the two cultures and how we approach uh, something like music. And um, to some extent, it was also true in art. I got to know Wayne Rosa pretty well in my first years at Bethel, and uh, he helped me understand. When I was actually at River Falls, I was quite taken with art history, particularly 20th century art history. So that, that is a part of me that comes out when I talk about light and optics. It, it just bubbles out now and then. The art is there, but it's a different perspective. I must say, for me in the world of physics teaching, I've been very involved nationally in American Association of Physics Teachers, and there's a growing tendency to view teaching as a science, much more than we used to do. And from it we learn so much, so that science of teaching is 
uh, increasingly obvious to, I'm sure it's not just true in sciences and other areas as well. Um, so that, but at times I have to admit to me, when you approach it too much that way, I have uh, some pushback. I, uh, I fall in love with physics so easily that to me to study intently and with data and so forth exactly how students are learning or not learning it is not what really makes me tick. So the, the science of physics teaching, for example, to me is a powerful tool. For me, it's almost like math. I enjoy math as a tool to do physics with. Uh, for me, the science of teaching and learning, for example, that when people are sitting in front of your lecture, they aren't getting nearly as much as you think they are, uh, but you can dream on and hope they're they're getting it. But it, the, that science of teaching is an increasingly important um, aspect of it. But for me, it's um, just um, when I think of, of a John Barber or Russ Johnson, uh, the the. The science of teaching is not, I'm thinking they're more of their personal personalities that they pour into all of that. Um, it's a, um, that's more, I, I don't know if you call that the craft, or I guess art of teaching. Um, when you think of art of teaching, you have to think of the impromptu and how you react to things on the spot. Um, and as we do lecture demonstrations, for example, that's part of the power of it, like, like we've said before. Um, and someone like a John Barber was a genius at that art, part of the art of, with a, a sense of humor that would just have you rolling in the floor and was in, in laughter, it was, that was part of the art of teaching for John, and uh, I hope for all of us. Um, and the craft is there too. To me, the craft is more like the demonstrations themselves and building them and taking, in my case, I've done them around uh, the U.S. Uh, I had a chance to do demonstrations in Latvia for the Optical Society. Uh, that was more the craft of it, just bringing what what you could carry in a suitcase uh, and do some fun demonstrations. I've done them in uh, in China at uh, Shandong University. I spent a, a week there and could not help but also do demonstrations. Um, and I did teach one semester in North Korea, which we hear more about in the news these days. Um, also doing uh, demonstrations uh, in a class I taught at um, Pust in um, Pyongyang. So that's part of the craft. So it's all of those things. Um, but my immediate re response to the question is, it's teaching has to be studied carefully, and it's more of a science than most of us have been brought up to think of it being. And uh, those who study it scientifically have so much to teach us. Um, 
in the area of physics, for example, just the knowing that students come into our class with preconceptions that are so deeply within us that even after they've been in your class all semester, unless you attack those preconceptions, they're probably not even going to change. And that's, uh, some of those Aristelian preconceptions of how things move and so forth. Um, and the, the science teaching is increasingly important to me. And um, even when I've at times pushed back because it seems to be taking the art away. I can remember giving a, a chapel once where I had a, an acoustic gadget up in front and I sort of said, when I teach, I want to be like this gadget because it was uh, the gadget was a musical instrument and it had what we would call resonance. So to me, my model of teaching that I often build on is uh, asking, are you really uh, resonant with your students and vice versa? What, what a resonance does is separates the wall there and the, the source of the energy, in this case the teacher, the classroom or lab, is, um, has to um, interact with the receptor the students and the, the receptors are feeding back information to the source and impacting what you do. So my model of quality teaching is, is that of resonance and, and you can't do it without feedback. So that's why when you do a demonstration in class in physics, you have to uh, pull that feedback out of them and that's where Someone like John Barber was very skilled at that. He could take a simple demonstration and build a whole one-hour class on it and would have students so involved with that demonstration that they're giving back to him and he was giving to them. That's, uh, and, and goodness knows, resonant, that picture of resonance, particularly a resonance that involves not just one object, one musical instrument, or uh, uh, for me the resonator that impacted my life the most, I suppose, is the laser. A laser is totally a resonant device in which light builds up between uh, these mirrors because certain frequencies and wavelengths just fit there. And, and in that case, you actually get uh, millions, billions of atoms all working together. It's, it's a powerful, it is a powerful metaphor. And that in turn comes back to affect the source. So um, I want my classes to be like a laser, I guess. I want them to uh, be uh, an example of where I'm reacting to the students and they are interacting with me as as the te the teacher then in that metaphor becomes kind of the source of the energy um, at best we all know it doesn't always work but uh, that's I do like to build the resonator metaphor up for teaching relationships with students um, 
being somehow sensitive to where they are at. Um, just this past fall, I, I started this honors class, which had 24 in it. It's a bit bigger than I might have liked. Uh, and, and in there, we took uh, 15, 20 minutes at the beginning where I met with each student. And somehow I had to learn there where they are really at. Uh, and and you know you could tell stories. It's a, by learning that uh, it also becomes, of course, a feedback to me uh, that makes teaching uh, worthwhile and very challenging. As I know, there are students there who who really are are hurting, and others who are just uh, maybe getting a picture of science that's a little more positive than they usually have had. Somehow we have to be sensitive to where the students are really at. And, and we, we all know that, of course, but, but to take the time to do it. I mean, uh, as I'm uh, retiring more fully these days, I certainly have regrets of where I failed to do that. Sometimes I think I needed to publish fewer papers and uh, get to know more students better. How many of them do we really know? Do we know their parents? I mean, really know them? Uh, I have friends, uh, one of them particularly in the physics community named Jim Stith, who's African-American, and he talks about what strengths the historically black colleges bring for, particularly for, for black students. And the biggest thing is that in these historically black colleges, the tradition, of course, would be that if a student's in your class, you would get to know them and you would get to know their family. In many cases, their mom, which in a physics world, we're kind of tend to be masculine oriented, but it, a lot of guys. But how many of my students did I really get to know their mother? Enough that I can appreciate what she was providing. Um, I can remember uh, a student in, actually in one of the honors classes, uh, who was from the Philippines and brought in her mom once to, it was wonderful to meet her. So, so, so those are the types of connections and, and sensitivity to them. I, I can remember one student, I'm actually going to mention her name because I know she wouldn't mind me mentioning her name, but this is Amy Herman. Uh, this was the middle 90s at Bethel. And Amy was a physics major, uh, but when she took general physics from me, uh, she certainly could do it. But she gradually learned this was not really her first love um, and uh, that she could do it. And she did stay a physics major. But she also became an English major. And she built up the skills that uh, putting the science together with, in this case, the humanities, it made a very powerful combination for Amy. She's now... Uh, the director of disease control for the for South Africa, 
with a PhD from uh, University of Illinois, Chicago in epidemiology. That's what she did with physics. And gradually I had to learn to listen to her and what she was needing and not put it down. That the, uh, you'd say, well, you could do physics. Yes, of course she could do physics, but that was not uh, Amy. She had much <laughs> bigger things she could do. Um, actually, in my own life, I can remember a high school teacher. Um, his name was George Dreyer, who, when I was kind of pontificating, seemingly that I was going to go into physics, um, took the time to take me aside and said, Peter, I remember it like it's yesterday, Peterson, if you're going to do physics, you've got to get a lot more serious about mathematics. Now, for me, that's what I needed to hear that day. But most of my teachers would not have taken the time to even say that. First of all, they knew me as kind of a relative loser. I was not uh, in the upper group of students, but to get to know the students well enough to know where they're really at and what their special needs are, that, that is what it's all about. And, um, and being aware of their uh, those needs come, as we all know, from our society. Um, I can remember doing a, a noon hour series with uh, Karen McKinney, where she was sharing with us what um, what racial barriers do on our campus between all of us, and gradually. Uh, uh, and I have some students of color in my own family. So it was um, a very opening experience for me to realize that I have to hear better when students um, are um, injured, those that have privilege and those that don't. These are all things that when I started teaching, I did not think about at all. But with the help of the Bethel community, I really grown to understand and appreciate and um, worry about and pray about. I'd want them to say that I pushed them. I, um, so I, that, that's part of me saying that. That's the part that as a physicist, which can be at times kind of an elitist discipline, but I, I still value that, and I want—I would not want the students to say that um, it was just enjoyable and uh, I didn't push them. Even the very best students need to be pushed. So I do want them to have that uh, experience in our classes, and most of them do. And when we do the surveys, of, of graduates and stuff, I think uh, the physics engineering department uh, gets rather high responses that uh, students respond, yes, I was pushed. Um, and uh, sometimes that pushing 
may mean that they, they may not have enjoyed that and they do something else. And that could be for them absolutely the right choice. So I do want people to, to feel they've been challenged and that the, the tree that they live on has been shook a little bit. At the same time, um, I want them to be affirmed by what um, my discipline and other disciplines like it uh, can provide to their world. And that's true whether they're in a conceptual physics class or in an honors class on the history of the bomb or, or whatever that might be. I, I, want, I want this to be something that, uh, I guess it was just uh, yesterday, I, I do respond to, uh, I do Facebook and one, one of the positive things that Facebook allows you to do is to keep in touch with students and see what they're saying. Uh, sometimes they may <laughs> want you to know what they're saying about everything, but but I can remember um, one student that was just yesterday saying um, he uh, still has our uh, atomic history of the bomb book sitting on his kitchen table because it, it has meant so much to him. So I want uh, those things to stick, not only for our majors, but for, um, for the general student population. So I want them to be challenged, and I want them to be sustained and affirmed by what they've learned about the wonders of, of physics, in my case. Well, advice for a new teacher probably is what, like we've been talking about, um, when I started teaching, I, it was mostly me as a source of knowledge. I think I did that fairly well. I always was responding to them. But I think I was not being changed by the students. And so to be, be prepared to be uh, impacted by your students, just talking to uh, one of our recent graduates who's in um, physics education, who is teaching uh, in the Twin Cities suburbs, but with open enrollment, uh, at least half of her class is, uh, is Somali, coming from Minneapolis in many cases, with open enrollments out to the suburbs. And believe me, she could, I think, affirm that she has to First of all, be really strong, <laughs> but she also uh, would uh, be pushing them to, pushing herself to, to really hear what those students are telling her, or in some cases they're giving her a real hard time because she they come from a different subculture, and somehow you have to be willing to really hear your students say uh, what they're saying to you. And if I have regrets, it's that, looking back, it's that at times I did not avail myself of that. I think to too much of an extent, I um, did my own thing and conveyed to them the excitement of my research and so forth, but I wish I had gotten known uh, to myself to be more impacted by their lives. And that's hard to do for a teacher. For students, I think, they have to um, um, be 
willing to really interact with a with a prof and pull him or her and out of that person what can really be useful to them I am uh, I uh, know in many cases that the student does not open up themselves to the prof. They don't come in and talk. They should. Um, for a student that's struggling to be struggling and still not come in and spend time at a place like Bethel and many colleges like us, uh, that's the opportunity that they need to take advantage of and most, most do not. Even if they're struggling or if they're not or if they're doing really, really well. Either case, they gotta to get to know that prof. Uh, teaching is a, uh, is a love affair between the teacher and the student, and in the best sense of that word. You, you've got to uh, draw upon each other, and um, that's what I, what would be the advice of the student is to, get to know your profs and uh, try to grow through their experiences. Advice for Bethel. I think pretty much to set up the situations where students can grow. And I say that, again, with some regrets. I feel at times we can be too elitist. Um, and I know, uh, I spent a year in the dean's office recently and I suspect I was known there as person always pushing who got to have high standards and uh, so forth. That's all extremely important, particularly in an area like mine. But somehow we have to set up the opportunities for students of all sorts, like I was. Uh, couldn't even, I would, just think of myself, for example, coming in to talk to the professor, this introverted, shy kid, there's no, almost no way I would do that. Somehow they have to almost convince me that, um, that they're there to help. And Bethel has to establish the situations where that happens. Like the cross-cultural center um, that's been set up in the last year or so, I know from talking to students that that's extremely important to them. And it was uh, a long-needed initiative from Bethel, and most of us would say it needs to be bigger than it is now. Uh, but it, it's an example of where the needs are being addressed uh, and in a way there needs for communication. And I think the center would say more of us need to get into there too. And I wish we could set up a, a way so faculty could interact positively with that place. The trouble with the faculty coming in could spoil the atmosphere uh, and cause people to freeze up. But it, that's just an example of a badly needed 
thing for, for decades at Bethel and um, it's working. We need to, we also need to, uh, for especially strong students, uh, I think highly of the honors program, uh, the honors program needs to be uh, strengthened, I think. Uh, I think it needs some money, as short as that is these days, and it needs stature that it's one of the most crucial. Again, it's just reacting to to student needs and uh, setting up the strategies for helping them um, grow in this place. Mm -hmm.